Introduction Part 1 Commentary in the Gospel of John Book 9 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentary in the Gospel of John Book 9 by Cyril of Alexandria Translated by Rev. Thomas Randall Introduction St. John 12, 4950 for I spake not from myself, but the Father which sent me. He hath given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life eternal. The things therefore which I speak, even as the Father has said unto me, so I speak. He reminds the people of the Jews of the things that had been aforetime proclaimed concerning him by Moses, and by this means skillfully rebukes them and, exposing the impiety that was in them, he clearly proves that they were caring nothing for having insolently outraged even the law itself, although it was believed to have been given from God. For what God said concerning Christ by Moses is well known to all men, but still I will quote it because of the necessity of perceiving the exact idea. I will raise them up a prophet from the midst of his brethren, like unto thee, that is to say, a lawgiver and a mediator between God and men. And I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them according as I may command him. And the man who will not hearken to whatsoever the prophet may speak in my name, I will take vengeance on him. At one and the same time, therefore, our Lord Jesus, the Christ, censures the boastful temper of the Jewish people, displayed in their fighting even against God the Father. And by saying that he has received a commandment from the Father and speaks not of himself, clearly proves that he himself is the prophet foreannounced by the law, and heralded by the voice of God the Father from ages long before. And in a way he calls to their remembrance, although their minds were sluggish in comprehending it, that if they refused to be persuaded by the words that came from him, they would certainly fall a prey to inevitable punishment, and would endure all that God had said. For they who transgress the divine commandment of God the Father, and thrust away from themselves the life-giving word of God our Saviour Christ, shall surely be cast down into most utter misery and shall remain without any part in the life that comes from him, with good reason hearing that which was spoken by the voice of the prophet. O earth, earth, hear, O hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I bring evils upon this people, as the fruit of their turning away, because they obeyed not my law, and ye rejected my word. For we shall find that the Jews were liable to a twofold accusation, for they failed to honor the law itself, although it was generally held dear and accounted an object of reverence, in that they refused to believe on him whom the law proclaimed. And they turned a deaf ear to the words of our Savior Christ, although he announced openly that he was certainly the prophet spoken of in the oracles of the law, when he declared that it was from God the Father that he was supplied with his words. And let no one suppose that the saying of the Lord, that nothing is spoken by himself, but that all comes from the Father, 
can do him injustice in any way at all as regards the estimate either of his essence or of his god-befitting dignity but first let the matter be thought over again and let an answer be given to this question of ours can any one really suppose that the name and exercise of the prophetic office befit him who altogether is and is regarded as being in his nature god surely i think every one however simple he may be would answer in the negative and say that it is incredible that the god who speaks in prophets should himself be called a prophet for he it was who multiplied visions as it is written and was likened to similitudes by the hands of the prophets since however he assumed the name of servitude and the outward fashion of resemblance to ourselves and with regard to his resemblance to us was called a prophet it necessarily follows also that the law has endued him with the attributes befitting the prophet that is to say the privilege of hearing somewhat from the father and of receiving a commandment what he should say and what he should speak and moreover i shall feel obliged to say this much also the jews possessed with a strong prejudice concerning the law believing that it had been spoken from god could not have been expected to accept the words of the saviour when he changed the form of the ordinances of old into a spiritual service and what cause had they to allege for being unwilling to accept the transformation of the types into their veritable significance they were not aware that he was by nature god nor did they even admit the supposition that the only begotten being the word of the father had borne our flesh for our sakes for else in immediate submission to god they would have changed their opinion in any way whatever without hesitation and would have faithfully revered his divine glory but the wretched men rather thought that he was altogether one like ourselves and that although a mere man he had thought so highly of himself as even to attempt to put an end to the very laws which came from god the father for instance they once said to him plainly for a good work we stone thee not but for blasphemy because thou being a man makest thyself god our lord jesus therefore by much wisdom and with a definite design seeking to turn his hearers from the idea that had taken possession of their minds changes the subject of his discourse from that which was simply and solely the human personality to him who was the object of acknowledged and undisputed adoration i mean of course god the father thinking it right to use every means of importunately pleading with the uneducated heart of the jews and striving by every possible method to lead on their dull minds to the desire to learn true and more befitting doctrines so much then may suffice in the way of argument and speculation for any one who would get rid of the carping criticisms of the unholy heretics when they suppose that the son will make himself in any respect whatever inferior to his own father by saying that he speaks nothing of himself but that a commandment has been given him and that he speaks according as he has heard and i think that this would really suffice 
yet I will also say something else by way of exposing the insolence of their loquacity. For come now, if it seems good to thee, and let us having summarized for the present occasion in few words the doctrine of the Incarnation, show concerning the only begotten himself that it was well and rightly said, I speak not from myself, but the Father which sent me, he hath given me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. For being himself the living and personal word of God the Father, he is necessarily the medium of interpreting what is in the Father, and in bringing to light that which is, as it were, the set will and purpose of his own Father. He says he has in effect received a commandment, and any one might see even in the case of ourselves that the fact is truly so and could not be otherwise. For the language of utterance, which consists in putting together of words and phrases, and which makes itself heard externally by means of articulate speech, reveals that which is in the intellect, when our intellect gives a commandment as it were to it. Although indeed the whole process does not take much time, for the moment it has decided upon anything, the mind at once delivers it over to the voice, and the voice, passing outwards, interprets what is in the innermost depth of the mind, altering nothing of what it has been commanded to utter. Where, then, is the strange part of the matter, sirs? Any one might very well say to our opponents, If the Son, being the word of God the Father, does in a manner not indeed exactly like ours, for the ways of God transcend all comparison. Interpret the will of him who begat him. For does not the prophet speak of him as called by a title most fitting for him, angel of great counsel? But this, I think, is quite clear. The only begotten, therefore, will suffer no detraction as regards his essence or his dignity even though he is said to have received a commandment from God the Father. For we ourselves also are often commanding others and ordering them to do something. But they will not on this account deny their community of nature with us, nor will they lose their likeness to us or be less consubstantial with us, whether before or after the utterance of the command. But thou wilt say that while they remain consubstantial with us, their dignity suffers from their submission to us. And I say this to thee on this point, concerning the only begotten. If it were not written concerning him, that being in the form of God, he counted it not a prize to be on an equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. The form of thy objection might really have had a not invalid significance. But since the manner of his submission and humiliation is clear, why dost thou recklessly rail at him who endured to suffer even this for our sakes? Making therefore our argument on every side to conform to accuracy of doctrine, we maintain that our Lord Jesus Christ has spoken the words of the phrase before us in full agreement with the scheme of his incarnation. 13. 1. 
now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the father having loved his own which were in this world he loved them unto the end the meaning contained in the words before us seems to most men somewhat obscure and not very capable of exact explanation nor indeed to possess as any one might suppose any simple signification for what can be the reason why the inspired evangelist at this point notifies to us particularly and so to speak as a necessary sequence of things that before the feast of the passover knowing that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the father christ acted as he did and again what is the meaning of having loved his own that were in the world he loved them unto the end allowing therefore that the uncertainty involved in this passage is by no means light i suppose it to imply something of this sort namely that the saviour before enduring his suffering for our salvation although aware says the evangelist that the time of his translation to heaven was now close even at the doors gave a proof of the absolute perfection of his love for his own that were in this world and if there is any necessity for conceiving a wider meaning for the passage i will only repeat once more what i was saying just now to christ our saviour peculiarly belong as his own possessions all things made by him all intellectual and reasonable creatures the powers above and thrones and principalities and all things akin to these in so far as regards the fact of their having been made by him and again to him peculiarly belong also the rational beings on earth inasmuch as he is lord of all even though some refuse to adore him as creator he loved therefore his own that were in the world for not of angels doth he take hold according to the voice of paul nor was it for the sake of the angelic nature that being in the form of god the father he counted it not a prize to be on an equality with god but rather for the sake of us who are in the world he the lord of all has emptied himself and assumed the form of a servant called thereto by his love for us having therefore loved his own which were in this world he loved them unto the end although indeed before the feast even before the passover he knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the father for it would have been the manner of one who loved them but not unto the end to have become man and then to have been unwilling to meet danger for the life of all but he did love unto the end not shrinking from suffering even this although knowing beforehand that he would so suffer for the saviour's suffering was not by him unforeseen while therefore says the evangelist he might have escaped the rude insolence of the jews and the unholiness of those who were meditating his crucifixion he gave a proof of the absolute perfection of his love towards his own which were in the world for he did not shrink in the least from being offered up for the life of all mankind 
for that herein especially we may see the most perfect measure of love i will bring forward our lord jesus christ himself as witness in saying to his holy disciples this is my commandment that ye love one another even as i have loved you greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends and for another reason the holy evangelists always set themselves purposely to show that our lord jesus the christ foreknew the time of his suffering namely lest any of those who are wont to be heterodox should disparage his divine glory by saying that christ was overpowered through weakness on his part and it was against his will that he fell into the snares of the jews and endured that death which was so very awful therefore the language of the holy men is in accordance with the divine system and profitable for our instruction two three four five and during supper the devil having already put into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he came forth from god and goeth unto god riseth from supper and layeth aside his garment and he took a towel and girded himself then he poureth water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded the saviour strives to eradicate utterly from our thoughts the vice of pride as the basest of all human failings and worthy of universal and utter abomination for he knows that nothing so commonly injures the soul of man as this most loathsome and detestable passion to which even the lord of all himself stands in just opposition after the manner of an open foe for the lord resisteth the proud according to the voice of solomon the holy disciples therefore especially stood in need of a sober and submissive temper and of a mind that reckoned empty honor as no high ambition for they possessed in no slight degree the germs of this sad infirmity and would have easily glided down into subjection to it if they had not received great help for it is always against those who occupy an illustrious position that the malignant monster vainglory directs its attacks think then what position can be more brilliant than that of the holy apostles or what more attractive of attention than their friendship with god a man who is of little account in life would not be likely to experience this passion for it always avoids one who possesses nothing that others can envy and nothing that is inaccessible to those whose lot is of no consequence in the world for how could such a one possibly exhibit vainglory on any subject whatever but pride is a feeling dear to a man when he is in an enviable position and when for this reason he thinks himself better than his neighbor foolishly supposing that he differs very greatly from the rest of mankind as having achieved some special and surpassing degree of excellence or as having followed a path of policy unfamiliar to and untrodden by the rest of the world since therefore it has come to be regularly characteristic of all who hold brilliant positions to be liable to attacks of the infirmity of pride it was surely needful for the holy apostles to find in christ a pattern of a modest temper 
so that, having the Lord of all as their model and standard, they themselves might also mold their own hearts according to the divine will. In no other way, therefore, as it seems, could he rid them from the infirmity, except by teaching them clearly that each one should regard himself as inferior in honor to the rest, even so far as to feel bound to undertake the part of a servant, without shrinking from discharging even the lowliest of menial offices. And this he taught them by both washing the feet of the brethren and girding on a towel in order to perform the act. For consider what utterly menial behavior it is, I mean according to the world's way of thinking and outward practice. Therefore Christ has become a pattern of a modest and unassuming temper to all living men, for we must not suppose the teaching was meant for the disciples alone. Accordingly, the inspired Paul also, taking Christ as a standard, exhorts to this end, saying, Let each one of you have this mind in himself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself. For in a lowly temper there is established a settled habit of love and of yielding to the will of others. Moreover, in order to highly exalt the significance of what was done, and to prevent us from supposing that Christ's action was a commonplace one, the inspired evangelist again cannot help being astounded at the thought of the glory and the power that were in Christ, and his supremacy over all, as he shows by saying, Knowing that the Father had committed all things into his hands, for although, he says, Christ was not ignorant that he possessed authority over all, and that he came forth from God, that is, was begotten of the essence of God the Father, and goeth unto God, that is, returns again to the heavens, there sitting, as we know, by the side of his own Father. Yet so excessive was the humiliation he underwent that he even girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. As therefore we have in this act of Christ a very excellent pattern of affectionate care, and a most conspicuous standard for our love for each other to imitate, let us be modest in mind, beloved, and let us consider that, whatever may be our own goodness, our brethren have attained to greater excellences than those to be found in ourselves. For that we may both think and be willing to think in this way is the wish of him who is our great pattern. 6-7 So he cometh to Simon Peter, and he saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt understand hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. The fiery and impulsive character of Peter, always far more eager than the other disciples to display devotion, can be observed, one might almost say, throughout all the records that are written of him. And so it happens that on this occasion also, following the bent of his peculiar character and usual tone of mind, he thrust aside the lesson of extreme humility and love, the record of which has been preserved in this passage. Remembering on the one hand who he is himself by nature, 
and, on the other hand, who he is that is bringing the basin to him, and shrinking not from fulfilling the duty of a menial servant. For he is dismayed not a little at the action, which is in a manner hard of acceptance to faith, even though it happened to be seen by many eyes. For who is there who would not have shuddered at learning that he who with the Father is Lord of all had shown his devotion to the service of his own disciples to be so intensely compassionate, that the very thing that seems to be the work of the lowest grade among servants he willingly and of deliberate intention performed to furnish a pattern and type of modesty and temper. Therefore the inspired disciple is dismayed and distressed at the circumstance, and makes the refusal as a natural result of his accustomed and habitual devotion. Moreover, not yet understanding the cause of the action, he supposes that the Lord is doing it with no special motive, and thinking only of the refreshment of their bodies. For that is the sole object of washing the feet, and not a little does it relieve their condition after walking. On this account he insists even very earnestly, saying, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? For surely, he says, surely this ought to be done by us who are by nature in the condition of servants, not by thee, the Lord of all. Christ, however, defers for a while the explanation of the event. Yet, to make him account its cause more weighty, he tells Peter that he should understand what the action meant hereafter meaning, of course, at the time when he should give a fuller explanation of it. And this point again, taken in connection with the others, will profit us not a little. For notice how, when the occasion calls for action, he defers his discourse. And again, when the occasion calls for discourse, he postpones action. For he was ever wont to assign all things to their fit and proper seasons. When, therefore, Peter made a sign of dissent, and plainly asserted that Christ should never wash his feet, the Saviour at once lays clearly before him the loss he would suffer in consequence, saying as follows, Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Inasmuch, therefore, as he had come to what manifestly and obviously is the central point of the incident before us, he says, if thou shouldst refuse to receive this strange and novel lesson of humility, thou wouldst find no part or lot with me. And since oftentimes our Lord Jesus the Christ, taking small matters as the suggestive occasions of his discourses, makes his exposition of general application, and drawing out to a wide range the lessons arising out of a single event, or the words spoken solely with regard to some individual circumstance, introduces into the discussion of the matters in hand a rich abundance of profitable illustrations. We shall suppose that in this also he meant to say that unless through his grace a man washes away from himself the defilement of sin and error, he will have no share in the life that proceeds from him, and will remain without a taste of the kingdom of heaven. For the uncleansed may not enter the mansions above, but only they who have their conscience cleansed by love to Christ, and have been sanctified in the Spirit by holy baptism. End of Introduction Part 1